And welcome back to 5:40 AM Sports Talk New York. Mark Roseman, AJ Carter, Ryan Sherman, with you this Sunday evening. Uh, we're also uh, pleased that we uh, have a lot more people joining us on the Sportscaster app to see them. Don't forget, if you are signed in and you're not a guest, you actually can throw some questions in there. We do see them, so uh, if we can fit them in while we have our guests on, that's also always a, a great thing as well. Joining us now is the man who played eight years in the majors. After three seasons with the Cincinnati Reds, he was traded to the New York Mets in the winter of 1967 and was a major part of the Miracle Mets that won the 1969 World Championship, defeating the Baltimore Orioles. During that magical championship season, he batted 300 and led the Mets in the National League playoffs, batting 537 versus the Atlanta Braves, seven hits and 13 at-bats. Without a doubt... My New York Mets fandom can be traced to the fifth inning on August 3rd, 1968, as his grand slam off of Nelson Bryles in the first game I ever attended at Chase Stadium had me hooked. It is a thrill to welcome number 24, Art Chamsky, to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Art. Oh, great to be here. Thanks. It's actually a thrill for us, and you've been with us before, but it's always great speaking to you. And joining you on the phone is a, another friend of the show, a frequent guest as well, a prolific writer. He's the author of the critically acclaimed King of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets, also co-author of five, four highly acclaimed baseball autobiographies, Out at Home with Glenn Burke, A Pirate for Life with Steve Blass, the New York Times bestseller Mookie, Life Baseball and the 86 Mets with Mookie Wilson, and Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. He's an annual, annual lecturer at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. It is a thrill to welcome back our friend Eric Sherman to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's it's great to be back on the show. You know, and the reason you guys are both on the phone together is you wrote after the miracle, the lasting brotherhood of the 1969 Mets, which truly is a moving and heartfelt memoir recounting all of the pivotal moments of that magical season, emphasizing the brotherhood and the lasting loyalty of the teammates on and off the field. So, Art. I know that this is the 50th anniversary of the Miracle Mets. I, I think I personally own every book written on the subject, going back to Joseph and, and uh, Leonard Schechter's Once Upon the Polo Grounds, the, the Mets That Were, The Year the Mets Lost Last Place by Paul Zimmerman and Dick Schapp, Stanley Cohn's A Magical Summer, Your Own Magnificent Seasons. So, you know, you take a look at the landscape uh, of how many books have been written. So was it somewhat of a daunting task to bring somewhat something new to something that most really diehard Met fans know all about and has been covered so many times in the past. Well, it's, it's, you're right. The, the 1969 Mets and, and the Mets in general have been probably written about more than any team in the history of, of sports, in particular baseball. And, and when Eric and I got together, we just talked about it, doing something for this 50th anniversary. And we wanted to do something. It was really Eric's idea. We wanted to do something that was, was special and, and and wasn't a game-by-game kind of replay of that 1969 season. Um, it, it, we wanted to do something where, where we wanted to just really talk about the, the camaraderie of the team and, and, and the relationship we had to each other. And, and uh, when we talked about it, we, 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 Eric's idea was to go out and, and try and, and, and interview and sit down with Tom Seaver because at that time he wasn't traveling. He wasn't really coming back east, and that was almost two years ago. And so we, we decided to try and go out there and, and take some players with us. And, and the whole scenario of events that, that happened because of that were, was, was, was kind of uh, an interesting story in itself because we had to, to, to get the guys who, could, who were free to be able to go, and we had to coordinate with them to get out there. And then when we got out there, we didn't really know if Tom was going to feel really well enough for us to sit down and talk with him. And, and to make a long story short, it, it worked out great, and, and I think Eric got a chance to see uh, 
how how much we liked each other and how how how, um, how everything went with all of us to, to be around and reminisce. And I think it was a, a wonderful experience. And that's really the crux of the book, talking about the trip out to see Tom and reminiscing with him. But but uh, it was really Eric's idea. I'm giving you credit, Eric. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Well, you're Eric. too kind, Art. Thank it's you. interesting, Eric, because having gone through the a process of you know of, of my book of the '78 79 Rangers and, and dealing with one team and and speaking to all the players, it, it's a huge thrill. So I know you were only three years old at the time of the '69 Mets, but you've interviewed so many other athletes for all your other books. But I have to imagine sitting at a table with Bud Harrelson, Ron Swoboda, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, and Art was pretty special. What what was your takeaway? of getting them together. I know logistically it was a nightmare and you chronicle that, but but when you actually got together and they started talking baseball, how did it differ from some of the other projects you did and, and what what was your takeaway? Oh, well, the difference is very easy to identify. Um, like Art had said, right up until the very last half hour, um, you know, as, as we had Kuzman and Swoboda and Harrelson in a van that we had rented at San Francisco Airport. You know, we're driving up through Napa Valley, up these hills, and, and I mean, right up until that point, we could very well have received a call from Nancy Seaver saying, you know what, Tom's not up, he's not up for it. Um, I, I mean, right up until the very last minute, this project that we had was, was, was truly up in the air. So. When, when you ask me a differentiator, um, how, how this was different from all the other athletes that I've interviewed for the different books that I've written, I mean, that's it. I mean, all, all the others, they were planned. Um, everyone was reasonably healthy, and, and it was a go. Um, but this, I mean, aside from Tom Seaver, uh, Ron Swoboda's wife, was battling uh, serious, serious health issues, and she was in re- recovery, so it was touch and go with re- whether or not Swoboda would come. Uh, Buddy uh, was at the very beginnings of his al- Alzheimer's, um, and Jerry, Jerry Kuzman um, has had some health issues in, in the past, dating back 20 years, so that was you know, nev- never a give, given either. So everything had to break right. And um, it's a miracle in itself that it did, and and I really believe that that we made history. That this isn't just a book about recounting the history of the '69 Mets, but uh, but the spine of the book, the planning of the trip, and the trip itself. We made history itself. You know what you haven't pointed out. This is this is AJ Carter is that you really had very limited time with Tom Seaver. You were down to one day. It was that tight in. You had a weekend to go out there. You only have one day with him and not. One of the things that struck me, though, is you, you started talking and, and chronicle in the book what happened in that van on the way to Tom. And had you expected that? Were you prepared just in terms of the process of the book? Did you start your tape recorder running? once Because you were driving the car, Eric. You know, what did you do? How did you figure that out? What, what was going through your mind as you're driving up to the vineyard to see Tom and Nancy Seaver? Well, it's a great point. I was driving, and believe it or not, I mean, I was taking notes. <laughs> um, you know, if somebody said, Kuzman was, was, you know, was saying one uh, funny thing after the next, yet Swoboda, the philosopher of the group, and, 
and art, you know, just so intelligent, you know, as far as baseball matters and, and reminiscing. And he's got a, an astounding memory. And we had Buddy, too. So, yeah, I would take some notes. And then if something would, if, if a story sounded really interesting, I, I would uh, record from my phone and then I would shut it off. You know, we were stuck in traffic for nearly three hours going from San Francisco Airport um, up towards the Napa Valley. And um, there was a lot of t- time in the car. So, you know, I didn't record nearly everything, but what I did do, um, I have a pretty good me- memory. And the notes that I would take, I would ask guys like Kuzman and Swoboda um, to tell certain stories over again, you know, just to make sure that I had everything right. So, you know, what's interesting, you know, you mentioned how uh, Mark, Mark had, had mentioned, well, how did it feel for me to be with these legends? Um, you know, I, I wasn't the least bit nervous about it or anxious because I was so busy. <laughs> you know, I wanted to make sure that, that I got all the quotes right and that I didn't forget to ask any questions. And, I, you know, the organization that was involved, the schedule was so tight um, that I was in overdrive as far as my concentration went. You know, I have to personally say I blew it because uh, Eric told me about this, about the book when it was in the process the last time he was on. And now what you just described – Forget about Jerry Seinfeld's comedians in cars getting coffee. This should have been ball players in cars getting wine. This, yeah. you know, this this was this was a Netflix series or, or, right or, here. Or in search of a Denny's to pull right. off and have a meal. Exactly. So, you know, Art, given the announcement by the Seaver family this past month that Tom's no longer making any public appearances, how much more did that get together mean to you now? Well, it was very, very special, and we, we knew at the time, I, I had known Tom was not well. He's, he's always had Lyme disease for over 20 years, and, and I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I know that, that it has to have some effects on, it, on, his, uh, on his general health, and I think it has a lot to do with some memory loss. And I knew uh, when we went out there that uh, he wasn't going to be coming back, at least that I thought there was a good chance he wouldn't be coming back. And, and it was bittersweet because uh, it was great to get together, but at the same time, it was a possibility that that we might not see him anymore. You know, we've lost, I think, ten guys from that team, and and as we've gotten older and 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 age has taken over, it, it's 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 always a concern that uh, somebody else might be uh, might not be around much longer. So for us, it was just a wonderful experience to to be out there and spend time with him, and we were all kids again. And I think Eric got a a sense of how close we were and and how much uh, how much fun it was to be out there. And you know. And, and we were out with a couple guys that all you had to do is say a word or two, and you'd instigate them, and that was in Swoboda and Kuzman. So that was great because we got them going, and, and, and it was just it was really nice to have Buddy out there and get together with Tom because they were roommates and, and very good friends. And, and it was just a wonderful experience to, to, to get out there. And, and when we left, it, it was it was kind of sad. It was, it was a, a feeling about uh, who knows what's going to happen next, and... and that's why I say it was bittersweet, but it was just a wonderful experience. And, and I think that's really what the book's about. It's about camaraderie, friendship, aging, the whole process. And, and, uh, and again, I just think it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of book that I think fans will really enjoy. 
You know, you mentioned that, and, and that was what I, what I was getting at when I asked you what you know you can bring different, and, and that's what this book does. I mean, it, it's perspective. It, it's all the guys that you're still in contact with, or or have gotten back in contact, looking back on this and the different stories and the brotherhood, and and it got me to thinking. And, and we had this conversation with with Bud Harrelson, Todd Pratt, and Lenny Harris down at Met Fantasy Camp, and we we're all sitting Ron there. Ron Sabota also. Not, not Bud. Oh, no. Uh, Ron Sabota, yeah, right. Sabota, and, yeah. and Lenny Harris. And Todd Pratt brought this up. And, and this is what I want to ask you, Art. That 1969 Met team, if we had a, a time, you know, if you move them to modern day and put that same group of individuals in a locker room today, given all the distractions, whether it be social media and everyone having their own brand and after a game sitting down and tweeting out their own individual, then, you know, instead of like the three reporters, you know, 25 to 30 reporters in the locker room, not having that bonding time, would that team still be as close today as it was then? Uh, it's so hard to say. It was, you know, it's it just, it, it, you know, it's a different world right now, but but uh, I, I'm thankful that we did have that. We had a, a cast of characters that was so special, from guys that were relatively quiet to guys that were really outspoken, like uh, Don Clendenin and Tug McGraw and Jerry Kuzman. And we had the quiet guys, like uh, Jim McAndrew and Ron Taylor, Cal Koontz. I mean, we had a combination of wonderful, wonderful guys. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, I miss that most about right now with, the, with that team, the locker room and the fun we had. Um, but... You know, we had terrific ball players too. Um, you know, and a great manager in Gil Hodges. It's, it's hard to say about what would happen right now. I just know that I do know that we had great pitching and tremendous defense, and that's what wins ball games and timely hitting, particularly in 1969. So, um, I think we would be uh, a good team at this point too. But back then, it, it was really, really special. And I think the, the, the thing that resonates with fans, so that has resonated with fans over the years, is where that team was a few years before the lovable losers and having had the history of being such a bad team and then put it into context of what was going on in the country and the world at the time with the war in Vietnam and all the, uh, the, the bad things that were happening with the assassinations and the city of New York going under, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a lot of problems. And I think people remember that and people have passed that on from generation to generation. And that, that's what really, uh, really, when I meet people who some of weren't even born when when I was with that team and when that team won the championship, but they know about it from their parents and their grandparents, and I think those two things really are the things that really stand out. Obviously, the book was planned to be timed with the 50th anniversary of of the championship, but with the Seaver announcement sort of bring to fore that you know this time is passing; it's a long time, and things are happening. Do you think this puts it sort of a new? slant on the book and why people think will want to read the book? Well, I, I think it, it just is something that people will kind of associate, but it wasn't planned that that was going to happen. Okay. It, it, I, I know, like I said before, I knew we knew a couple years ago that Tom was not going to be traveling much, and when we were out there visiting with him, he actually said, this is what I want, the only thing I want to do now is spend time out you know, with the wine and, and be at home. He didn't want to come back. He, he really wasn't going to do much baseball stuff anymore, and and while, while it was really a kick in the gut to hear about the announcement a week and a half ago, the fact remains that, that back then, two years ago, uh, we all knew that Tom was not going to be traveling much. He hasn't been to the Hall of Fame in a couple of years for the ceremonies there. So it, it, just, it was just something that, that was, was, uh, we knew was, a, was happening, but 
but uh, it, it it puts a, a little bit of a damper on on what's going to happen in June with the reunion. But the reality of it is, it's still a very close knit team, and guys, uh, there's still a, a, a nucleus of guys around who were who were so special to that team, and 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 were all contributed to the success of that team. And I think it it will it will still be very very special, and and hopefully maybe Tom can make a recording or do some video or something, and and um, who knows, but. Uh, it's a special year for all of us who are part of that team. You know, and, and aside from all of that, there is a lot of great baseball stories about that season. And, Eric, you and Art paint the picture of the, the Mets-Cubs rivalry so well, including the tremendous dislike around the league for the Cubs manager, Leo DeRocher. What are some of the things you learned about Leo in talking to Art and the players, Eric? Well, um, it was pretty well, well known, and it's been pretty well do- documented, uh, what a controversial figure Leo DeRocher was. Um, I, I, the thing that I learned um, was just how he kind of ran that team into the ground. I mean, that was, like I didn't understand or fully recognize the extent how he just rode the same horses all season long. And and you know, I'll say this: every player on the '69 Mets that we interviewed just goes on and on and on glowingly about Gil Hodges and how they never, ever would have won without him or even come close. And Hodges was a master at the platoon system. Um, and the players, I mean, Art will be the first one to tell you, you know, I mean, Art was in his prime in 1969, and he had to share right, right field with Ron Swoboda. And the two of them com- combined, I, I think they had 24 home runs and 99 RBIs. I mean, that's a terrific right fielder that was morphed, you know, between Swoboda and uh, Art. Um, but that was the most poignant thing that I learned about DeRocher and the Cubs. Uh, the, you know, the, the fact that the Mets utilized every man on that 25-man roster, and DeRocher really didn't do a very, very good job of that. And, and you know, the Cubs, they, they play all those day, day games or uh, Wrigley Field. And they were burnt out by August. Uh, they had an older team, and um, I think DeRocher probably is to blame um, for not keep keeping the Cubs cl- closer than they were in September. That's a, that's a great, great point about the way Gil used his you know roster and the way Leo's team wore down. And, and to a man in the book, the players saw that. So Art... For a guy that, that, you know, like Eric said, in the prime of his career, or even some of the quotes in the book about from Rod Gaspar saying he was better than Swoboda, that he should be the starter, does seeing the Cubs wearing down in August kind of subconsciously, you know, maybe um, psych- psychologically-wise say, okay, you know, maybe it allows you to put that ego aside and say, you know, okay, we're doing this for the betterment of the team, Maybe Gill's right, and that creep, that, that thought saying that I should be out there every day totally disappears, and you guys really buy into that team concept. Well, we accepted it because it was working. Uh, in reality, nobody liked it. It really didn't. It wasn't great for your career. I mean, uh, back then we couldn't have agents, and they would use these things like, uh, you know, you didn't play every day against you and all these other things. But, but the fact remains that it was working, and everybody pulled for everybody else, and and um, it was very difficult at times. Personally, for me, I had a great playoffs uh, against the Atlanta Braves, and, and I don't start the first game of the World Series, but then he sends me up to pinch hit with two outs in the ninth inning 
against Mike Cuellar in the first game. So, you know, I respected Gil so much, and, and I think all the players did. And But really and truly, nobody liked the situation of, of not playing every day, but it was working, and, and to Gil's credit, he was able to get the most out of everybody on that team. Uh, Gil was a manager who managed by feel. Uh, you don't see those anymore in the game today. It's all about sabermetrics and about printouts, and Gil was a guy that knew who his players were at the end of the bench, and it, he knew that at some point during the season he's going to need those guys who are the 23rd, 24th, and 25th guys on the team. And he got everybody involved. And, and really, the, when you talk about that team in 1969, it's not just about Tom Seaver and Kuzman and Cleon and, and uh, Tommy Agee. It's about the guys you just mentioned, like Rod Gaspar and Bobby File and Ed Charles and Wayne Garrett and Boswell Weiss. And, you know, you can go down the list. J.C. Martin, Duffy Dyer. Every, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, staying with that July series, you detail that series so well with the Cubs and the energy at Shea Stadium, which would set the stage for the September series. The July series included that amazing night with Tom Seaver's imperfect game. It's funny, I was nine years old, but not only do I remember watching that game on TV, but I remember watching Tom and Nancy Seaver on Kiner's Corner and Nancy crying on Kiner's Corner. Or what do you remember about that night as the game wore on and it got closer and closer and, you know, towards that perfect game? And if I remember correctly, you were also a member of the Reds when Jim Maloney no-hit the Cubs for 10 innings in 1965. How did those two games differ as an observer? Well, Jim Maloney was a terrific pitcher with the Reds, and uh, he, he wasn't the finesse pitcher that Tom was. And, and But Jim could really throw and had a great arm. He pitched two no-hitters that year and got beaten in the 10th yeah. inning at Shea by uh, Johnny Lewis. I remember the game. I was with the Reds at the time. Tom, Tom was an unbelievable pitcher at there's, there's no doubt in my mind that I felt every time he went out and pitched, he could pitch a, a, a no-hitter. He, he had that kind of stuff. And I've always said, um, I know he got hit hard on occasion. Every great pitcher gets hit hard once in a while. But I, I can count on one hand probably the number of times I remember he got hit hard. And he went out there, and he was such a, a joy. I, I got a best of both worlds. I played against Tom uh, a little bit and then played with him and behind him. And he was an unbelievable pitcher. And and, and when he pitched, you knew you were going to win quick or lose quick. Uh, I loved those games when he was uh, pitching against Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton and Juan Marichal and Koufax and all those guys. They were great games, and, and he was I, – I, I thought I read a stat the other day where and all the starts he had uh, – I don't remember the total number of starts, but there was 208 games where he gave up one run or less in, in, in 208 games in, in seven innings. I mean – that's an unheard of. That's an incredible statistic, and that's the kind of pitcher he was. And he's, I think history will show he's one of the great pitchers ever in Major League Baseball. Now, Mark and I have talked about this a lot over the years. To me, the, the turning point in the season, as an 18-year-old watching this, was the, the road trip on the West Coast, where you won with 10, 11 games in a row. And you talk about this in the book. Maybe you can share with our listeners what it meant, how everything started gelling at that point in the team that said, hey, you know, after all this... We're, this is finally the year we can do this. We even better than the 500 team that that Gill had hoped we would be. Well, uh, it really boiled down to with Gill's with Gill's strength as a manager, telling us and teaching us, you know, how to win close games. We 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 had the pitching and defense. Even when I got over there in 1968, uh, I think the real true turnaround was you, you could pick one game or one player, and and it might be true, but I, the, in my mind. The real turnaround was that we started to win close games, two to one, three to two, and that really was Gill's teaching us and, and us finding ways to win games. 
and and I think that was really the change from the early years to 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 1969. In the middle of the season, when we started to play better, and then in August when we were unbelievable, it was really about us just dominating and, and winning those games that we normally should win, but also those games three to two, two to one, the close games that we had historically found ways to lose. So I think that was really the key. You know, Eric, I, I have to think as an author, getting to write about such a magical season with so many great moments is a rush, but it also comes with a little bit of pressure. The Black Cat is not just an amazing Met moment, but it's really a historical baseball moment. So first off, for our younger audience who might not know the story, can you tell them a little bit about it? And did you feel added pressure to, to get that story just right, given its significance in, in Met lore? Oh, abs- well, the whole book, I... <laughs> I, I realized from the very, very beginning when we were taking on a project like this that I had to be on point. Um, and, I mean, every sentence, every paragraph in the book, um, you know, was read over and over and over again to make sure I got it just right, factually, everything just right. Um, so, you know, the black cat, um, you know, that's, a big part of Mets lore. Um, uh, there have been various stories of where the cat came, came from. And um, well, what we did, what Art and I did, and and I have to give Art a ton of credit for getting us access to not just the players, but in the case of the black cat, the head groundskeeper. Um, so, so we we nailed the black cat story. This black cat came out of nowhere and began running a circle, uh, I think it was around Ron, Ron Santo, in the on-deck circle, and then just stared straight into Leo DeRocher's eyes from the top step of the dugout, and then disappeared just as quickly as he appeared. Um, so we went straight to the head, you know, the head groundskeeper to get the story, and then we interviewed guys like Kuzmin and and Swoboda and those guys to get their per- perspective. So we gathered all the facts and we put it together. And I think the story that, that we tell is the most accurate uh, because there have certainly been different variations of that story told o- over the years. But we went out of our way to get it right. Um, and I think it's the first time that the head grounds <laughs> crew has gone on record uh, of the 40 or so so books that I've read on the 69 Mets. You know what's amazing about this book, uh, especially the, the chapters where the guys are together, um, you know, it's written with, with such love. And if you are a fan or you follow Eric on Facebook, you see some of the photos that he posted, and there's some of the photos in the book. And, you know, it reinforces what the reader is already seeing in their mind when they're reading the text. So that's truly the mark of great writing. So I have to commend both of you for for an absolute amazing job. And, you know, on that note, how tempting was it? I, I, I mean, as great as reliving the season was, you know, there was something special about that group together how tempting was it to maybe go another chapter or, or maybe almost add like a where are they now with each of the guys somewhat, you know, having an interaction, even though there are interactions in the book, you know, that Art spoke to so-and-so that's in there. But was it tempting to expand maybe even a little more with the Napa visit? 
Oh, is that for me or for Art? Both, but you can take it first, Eric, and then we'll sure. bounce it back to Art. Well, the one temptation that I had, and I actually went back and forth with the editor a little bit on it, um, you know, our first interview was, was with Ed Charles. Hmm. We went to his apartment. It took us like six or seven different subways to get there. It was a bitter, cold day a couple of winters ago. But uh, Ed Charles was not doing well. His health was really fa- failing. And, and, um, and, and we knew that to include Ed Charles, the legendary Ed Charles, in, in the book, we needed to see him quickly. And it was one of the most riveting afternoons with a professional baseball player that I've ever had. Now, Art's been friends with Ed Charles for over 50 years. Uh, but it was the first time I had ever met him, and it was like walking into history. I, I mean, this guy, in in my mind, was on a similar level as a Jackie Robinson for everything he went through. You know, his his major league career was delayed six or seven years because of prejudice. Um, his stories were incredible, and so I said to the editor. I think we should do a chapter just on Ed Charles and the impact that he had, not just on the game of baseball, but, but civil rights and certainly, you know, a veteran presence on that 69 Mets team. And, and I know Art, Art can speak to this, you know, what a calming influence Ed Charles had, not, not just with players like Art, uh, but also through his poetry. He was such a man of peace when... He had every reason to be bitter. And that was, so when you ask that question, if there's anything I would have changed, nothing about the Napa Valley visit, but that would be one thing that um, we went back and forth on. And But the danger would have been it may have uh, taken some of um, you know the spotlight off of what our main project was. But somebody's got to write a book about Ed Charles. I think, you, but in the book, you guys really did capture the essence of Ed Charles and, and the the influence he had. And it's so funny you say that because Ed was kind enough. He had written a poem about Ralph Kiner in my Kiner's Corner book. Ed was kind enough to let us reprint it, and, and just not a mean moan in his body. You know, look, looking ahead, and, and this is a question mostly for Art, as opposed to Eric. You come up to the reunions planned in June. Who? Are you really looking forward to and hoping to see, you know, come to that reunion who you haven't seen in a long time? Is it one player, two players, three players? And what are you hoping? What type of stories will be told during that weekend? Well, on a personal level, I want Kenny Boswell to come back because he owes me money from all the room service I bought <laughs> over the years when we were rooming together and never has paid me in all these years. So well, Hopefully the so guy with the binoculars. Really with him. Well, well hopefully there. hopefully the guy with the binoculars that was yeah. looking for Kenny Boswell in your room yeah. won't be at the oh reunion. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> another story. There's a lot of interest growing on that, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. It was such a close-knit team. And, you know, winning really aids that, too. And, again, what we came from years before um, really magnified that. But, but everybody was friends on that team, and everybody – Everybody really cared about each other, and and we've all grown old together. Older, I should say. I don't want to say old, but I'm really looking forward to seeing all those guys. And 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 uh, and we're t- we'll we'll get around and we'll start telling stories. And some will be stretched out a little bit. You know, there's no doubt about that. 
But, but uh, you know, we did a 25th reunion in 94, and that was one of the uh, a few teams that could put out products and, and do all sorts of things, and, and uh, that was a special time, too. But uh, I think for me personally, it's just getting back together and, and seeing some of the guys and, and uh, really kind of reminiscing. And, and, and everybody was important on that team, and, and, and I think that's really really. Uh, everybody should know that everybody was so important to that team and, and everybody feels, I think, part of us winning. And I think that's very, very special. Uh, when that reunion takes place, I, I'm just wondering, I, I know for me, uh, you know, every time, you know, I go to cover a game, I kind of walk through the parking lot for the footprint of, of Shea Stadium. Do you think a lot of you guys will go out just in the parking lot? I, I, I know City Field is great, but I would have loved if, if Shea Stadium, even though you know everyone said it was a dump, it was our dump, I would have loved that reunion to happen there. But do you think you guys will go out in the parking lot in the footprint as well and just take it in a little bit? I think some of the guys might do it. Listen, I, I agree with you. When, when they tore down Shea, part of my youth was taken away from me. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's where, where we made history. But, but uh, you know, I, I think guys will do whatever they think is going to help them remember and and. and reminisce a little bit and i wouldn't be surprised if they did that um it, it, you know guys are funny so everybody has different thoughts and and memories about certain things but uh, but uh, you know i'm sure they'll do uh, different things and and try to get back some guys haven't been back here in so long that i think just being around the ballpark in that area might be very strange for them but but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some guys just take a walk around and see some of the some of the stuff that's out there where the ballpark used to be Eric, best place for everyone to find out about the book, get the book, stay in touch for all the book signings that are coming up? Well, um, it's, it's being sold everywhere books are sold, um, and it's been doing very, very well. It's, it's been going back and forth between the number one and number two new baseball book release on Amazon. I know that. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, my, my Facebook page, uh, uh, Eric Sherman Baseball, or on Twitter, um, which is uh, at by Eric Sherman. Uh, I'll be posting uh, all the signings and events that Art and I will be doing, and uh, of which there's going to be plenty of them. <laughs> Art, Eric, thank you so much for your time tonight. More importantly, for an amazing book. Most importantly, Art, thanks for that grand slam, as well as making the summer of '69 the greatest summer a nine-year-old could have ever had. Well, thanks. I remember the pitch too. Nelson Bryles, it was three two count. Bases were loaded. And I hit him in the second deck in right field. I remember it. That, and, uh, and my seats. You remember were, all those special hits, I think. That was a special one for me. First game ever. Uh, I was in the right field. And, and to see back in the day, Shea Stadium, the scoreboard with the, the rainbow colored lights on the side of the white. You know, it would go off on a home run. There was no, there was no Big Apple back then. It was just these like multicolored lights were were so cool to an eight-year-old. But that was the moment that you know hooked me at becoming a Met fan. Right. Well, there. I'm glad I had I contributed to to your baseball love of the game. Thanks, Thanks. so much. Really nice. You got it. Art Chamsky, 1969 world champion, New York Met. Eric Sherman, one of our favorite authors, together talking about their tremendous new book, After the Miracle: The Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets.